Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with me, your host, Dr. Nick. This week's episode, Simplifying the Healthcare Administrative Burden. The complexity of healthcare has continued to increase apace. Not the care, which has as well, but the associated activities, the administrative burden, documentation, and billing requirements. You only need to look at the old paper files before we move to digital records to get a sense of the trajectory healthcare was on. But the move to a digital environment has hidden the continued explosion of content since one megabyte on a hard drive looks much the same as 20 gigabytes, at least from the perspective of a human looking at the computer interface. Now, in some cases, the information is part of the additional data we are capturing on our patients. Our ability to capture data and incorporate this into the health record is no longer limited to basic vitals intermittently gathered manually. We now plug into monitoring systems that stream patient data at high rates, populate records and advance our understanding of the human disease and guide treatment effectiveness. And this data explosion is only set to further explode as we start to include the unexplored large data sets of genomics, proteomics, and the biome, to mention a few. But alongside these new data elements has been the continued demands placed on our clinical staff to document their activities. Failure to do so in the prescribed format and wording can mean the difference between receiving payment for the service delivered or not. This week, we are decomplexifying the healthcare system. My guest today is Dr. Jeff Goldsmith, the president of Health Futures. He was a lecturer in the Graduate School of Business at the University of Chicago on health services management and policy, and has lectured at Wharton School of Finance, Johns Hopkins, Washington University, and the University of California at Berkeley. Can we remove complexity and the administrivia from healthcare and still deliver good care? Jeff thinks so. Jeff, thanks for joining me today. Nick, it's a pleasure. So uh, let's dive straight in. Digital health, um, is it a disaster or is it working for us? What's going on? Well, it's definitely working. Um, it's, I think the, the idea that it's new is a little hard to swallow um, because a lot of the technologies that people are using and that have been um, really amplified by this pandemic are 20 plus years old and that have finally found a use case um, that was um, in some cases, frankly, missing uh, before. It took an interruption in relationships, a comprehensive interruption in relationships 
face to face to get people to realize they had this incredible tool. It was there all along. And oh my God, why don't we use it and and continue those relationships? Right. I mean, telehealth has been around for at least 50 years because that's a, as long as I can recall following the space program, they've been doing <laughs> telehealth with their astronauts. And yet we didn't use it. Suddenly the pandemic comes along and it sort of pushes people to it. But has it really delivered value? It seems like, okay, we're, I, I don't want to say we're out of it. It feels like we'll never be out of it sometimes. Um, but is it really delivering um, economic value as well as actual value to the patients, the clinicians? And if so, how? Well, remember that there's a very broad spectrum of, of relationships that are supported uh, digitally. Um, you know, I first got involved in this as a um, enthusiastic supporter of an investor in um, a company called VisiQ. Um, that was created by a couple of brilliant uh, uh, intensivist docs at Hopkins um, that took advantage of what was then a very primitive uh, artificial intelligence, uh, but also a structured data framework to help people manage intensive care patients remotely um, 20 some odd years ago. And it, it, was, a, it was a smashing success uh, as a technology, as a business, um, it, it sputtered, um, you know, and, and I think um, you know, it was eventually purchased by Philips, but you know, there was a dramatic reduction in length of stay. Uh, there was a remarkable reduction in mortality. Um, you, could, you could proactively plan for a group of, of, of um, ICU patients uh, based on their likely trajectory and focus your resources on the people that needed the most help. This was a remarkable tool set. Um, so, you know, you've got that at one end and then you've got this whole array of, of digital uh, consultation uh, services that we've seen spring up with particular force in, in the behavioral uh, uh, health uh, space where you, know, you, you don't have to have a physical appointment, you're not lying on a couch, uh, you're lying on your own couch uh, and you're talking to someone in your space on your terms. So I think you know, digital health is, isn't a, an entity, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a sprawling, um, uh, sector um, that um, really isn't a thing in and of itself. It's, it's a way of amplifying the relationships that were there all along. But let's take that VisiQ because, it, you know, there was clearly clinical benefit. We saw that in the papers, things that were published. It, it was challenged. Uh, ultimately, I think it, it's certainly successful. It's being used extensively. That's tele-ICU. We see the value of that. We see it in tele-stroke. But let's go to the sort of more localized version and, you know, the pandemic influence has sort of pushed people into this telehealth world. But what's that done to the economics of the underlying equation for the physician? Really difficult to tell. Um, and, and so much of this is a function of, of workflow. Uh, in other words, how do you blend uh, the time that you spent interacting with people like we are interacting now with the time that you spend um, uh, in face-to-face in contact where you, you actually touch the other person, um, you engage them. Um, so I think blending those two workflows has been really challenging. Uh, and whether it's produced a net gain in physician um, uh, productivity remains to be seen. It's not clear that it has. But it's not just productivity. I, I, I think right? there was some equity that was transferred in the 
urgent circumstance where they said you can now bill for it, bill outside of your state, all of those sort right. of rules. But there's been at least a push to re enable some of that activity. So now I'm a clinician. My time got shifted from in-person to virtual. I'm still spending the same amount of time, potentially more intense in some respects, albeit I can't do everything, but I'm not getting paid. How do we fix that? Well, you know, this is one of the areas where I'm a little out of step with the, the field in that I think that what we ought to be paying for in the first place is relationships, not visits. So in a relationship-based model, um, you know, digital helps me a lot because I can weed out the stuff that doesn't require an in-person visit, let alone requires a, an emergency room visit or some type of acute intervention. I can use digital means as a, as, a as a tool for triage and for, you know, trying to sort out where my time can best be spent. Um, I think this idea that you pay for medical care the way you pay for legal services, you know, in five minute or 15 minute increments, it's just a disastrous, it's the wrong path to follow. So the idea that we're, you know, we really are straining our existing payment system um, by insisting that people be paid per call. The call ought to be a part of the relationship and we ought to be paying for the relationship. That's at least my view anyway. So I, I, there's a part of me that agrees. I mean, I think that this navel gazing on time and materials doesn't yeah. help. It doesn't sort of focus people. You, you get what you incent ultimately. And if you incentivize a sort of time activity, then that's what people produce. And obviously you find those small instances of abuse. But as you describe that, that reminds me of the historical uh, system of DRGs and the grouping and saying, OK, we're in this and we're, yep. we're going to pay you. But that produced inequities and challenges because you couldn't categorize it appropriately. How do we settle all of that? Yeah, I mean, you've raised a really complex and messy issue. And I guess, you know, I don't have a snappy answer to it. I just think that I think that the I think the digital interaction ought to be part of a bundle. And that bundle is about furthering the clinical you know, the health objectives of the individual and using the time of the clinician in a thoughtful and intelligent way to do that. I have never been a believer in the idea that we are slaves to incentives, that if you set up a certain set of incentives, people like rats in a scare box, just maximize the number of, of pushes in, until the little, the little pellet drops. I don't think that's the way doctors operate. And I think we've really been, um, we have done the, uh, we've slandered the profession by, our, by, by elevating incentives to the point where it's, it, it, you either fix the incentives or nothing else changes. That flies in the face of what I know about places that are practicing quality medicine where people aren't looking at the billing sheets. They're not, you know, they're not constantly asking, you know, am I getting paid for this? They're trying to solve a problem. They solve the problem, they get professional satisfaction. The patient's problem is solved and they, they, they reward the physician with their own confidence and with referrals. So but I think you're highlighting. I, I, I think we've been, I think we've been completely entranced by this whole moral hazard problem that Kenneth Arrow raised with us going on 60 years ago. And, and we've tied ourselves in knots to fiddle with the incentives to the point where the incentive schemes are so complicated, they're, they're 
they're a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. Yeah, you can't follow what the incentive will ultimately produce. Right. The whole IVU, the way that that all constructs. Right. I agree with you. I mean, physicians unquestionably go into the profession for the purposes of delivering that care and that one-to-one con- uh, contact and interaction, delivering value. But they seem to get stimmied by that, by all of these drivers that sort of right. push them, particularly with um, practices that are now being bought. You've got health right. systems. Yep. How do we reverse this? It feels like we're just on a train that's never going to turn around. Well, I, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I've, I um, have been tracking this uh, whole value-based payment thing uh, for, I don't know, close to 40 years. A lot of my consulting work revolved around how do we, how do we uh, respond to Kaiser in our market? How do we prevent our patients from disappearing into this, you know, like the Borg, you know, just sucks them in and then you never see them again. And, and I honestly believe that the core of any successful um, um, health system is its clinical enterprise. And what animates that clinical enterprise is values. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a commitment to service and to using the collective intelligence represented in those clinicians to do a, a spectacular job of meeting their needs. Well, I think we're going to need to decomplexify our health system. We're going to need to give clinicians back a day a week of the time that they are presently wasting typing stuff into the electronic record. We've created a shortage of physicians um, by all of the documentation requirements that we've heaped on them in the name of value-based care. I think the value-based care movement has been a failure um, and not because value isn't important, not because encouraging people to do a better job isn't important, but because we've gotten tangled up in our underwear in trying to measure it all and turn it into some kind of a a pseudoscience, which it is not. This really ought to be about leadership, clinical leadership and values, not about maximizing the earning power of the physician at any moment, moment in time. But if you can't measure it, how do you improve on it? Well, by setting examples of what clinical excellence really looks like and by relying on the feedback of your patients that you you have in fact helped them and do it again. And what have we done right to sustain these relationships? Uh, I think we have, we can't do simple in this country to save our lives. And I think if a Martian landed in a, a contemporary healthcare clinic and watched what doctors and nurses were doing, they'd be horrified because they're spending half their time typing in service of this idea that if we just measure it minutely, we can somehow fix it. Uh, I think we've given ourselves a huge societal hot foot by doing this. And we burned out a lot of clinicians that really went into the field to do something different, to actually help people not to type. So I think the stats around this and having spent some time around documentation, it's extraordinary. So the, the, the newly emerging doctors that enter the residency program, I believe the statistic is somewhere of the order of 70% or more of their time is spent at the computer entering and tracking and doing all of that informational uh, processing, which, you know, as a value add, that time certainly for me was about learning clinical skills. Is there some scope to solve or try and find solutions? You know, I'm thinking of ambient intelligence, speech, and so forth to help solve that? Or is it a more fundamental problem? Even if we do this, we're just going to create more requirements? I don't know. I mean, I sat on the board of a um, 
of a, uh, uh, a large healthcare IT company, the name of which is not, not relevant to this conversation. Um, and improving the user experience was not the number one agenda item. It was matching up with the competitors' uh, features and functions uh, and making the, the product even more complicated than it was before. So I think the incentives to the vendors are wrong. Um, I think you know a revolution in the user experience needs to happen. Some of it is going to be produced by more effective artificial intelligence. I mean, I think you know people are you, you have this concept of of uh, alert fatigue. You know, we where there's a limited amount of bandwidth you can push back from uh, an electronic record system before people just just tune it out. I think the record itself is going to need to be more intelligent, but the record is really going to need to be about the clinical experience rather than billing and trying to maximize bonuses from all your value-based contracts. And I think that's really been where people have gone, gone wrong. Um, one, of my, uh, one, of the, um, uh, one of the reporters that works in this field that I admire greatly uh, is uh, Anna Wild Matthews of the Wall Street Journal. And my very first interview with her went on for like an hour and a half or something like that. And I got her talking. And one of the things she said to me was that she saw parallels between what had happened to clinicians uh, in the wake of high tech and the in in introduction of these electronic records and what happened to the independent trucker when GPS was, uh, was introduced is that all of a sudden you could track where that trucker was down to the meter by using GPS, they completely lost their freedom and became uh, the pawns of the trucking companies that employed them. Um, uh, per hour comp fell, uh, worker satisfaction fell. And I was like, well, wait a minute, truckers, doctors? I mean, where's, where's the balance here? But I think a lot of the people that promulgated high tech were really about trying to control what happened in that exam room and operating suite from the outside. And a lot of these measures were really designed to hedge against uh, the physician's presumed incentive to abuse the patient and abuse the society economically. And I think it's just been a tragic misallocation of our, of our energy. So given that, we, we both see this uh, challenge within the healthcare system. I, I, but at the same time, you're talking about positive experiences and, uh, you know, the system is delivering care. Is it just not widely distributed? Is it just in narrow bands? I think people are really struggling. I, I know um, I, I had, uh, I had uh, cancer uh, in 2015. And one of my most vivid memories of that, that process was I was in the hospital for eight days uh, post uh, uh, a surgery of walking by the nurse's station, which I would do every couple of hours. They weren't talking to one another. They were rushing out of the patient room to get back to the nurse's station, not to interact with one another, but to type into the computer to try and catch up on the stream of documentation. And it just, it, 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 it just hit me like, like a brick, is that I really needed more of their time. And I, as a patient, I was suffering. I was having problems with the pain post-op and I wasn't getting helped because they were too busy typing. And, and I don't think they wanted to do that. You're going to almost see the conflict inside their heads. It's like, I really want to continue talking with you and figure out what's wrong, why I can help you. But I'm 45 minutes behind and I'm not going to finish by the time my shift is up unless I get back to the nurse's station and get back to my computer. And I just, it was, it was just, it was one of the most disturbing things about the experience. 
But that all ties back to documentation, the requirement from a billing. So part of me says, do we just separate out the two? Do we say there's clinical documentation and it's disconnected from the billing documentation and we just have maybe a capitated rate? I I mean, this was the hope for bundling is that that you, you would bundle and then you wouldn't gather all the information about each minute piece of the bundle because it's like with DRGs, there's only so much money there and if you can't figure out a way to deliver the care inside that bundle, you lose money. And therefore, you need to re-engineer the process. That's the way it ought to have worked. But what's happened instead is you get a bundle, and then you're measuring everything else. So there's, there's no net reduction in documentation. I think this is particularly important for primary care. Because I've argued for many years that primary care really ought to be relationship-based. If I have a primary care physician, they ought to get a check every month from my insurance company. And the insurance company ought to stop gathering all that other information. Because the real question is, does the relationship continue? And is there some macro level of evidence across the physician's entire panel that they're doing a good job? To do both is to defeat the purpose of bundling or of relationship-based payment or capitation in the first place. Capitation was once upon a time a transfer of risk and responsibility. You got out of the way as a payer and you let the clinical team that you handed the premium dollar to decide what was appropriate and what wasn't. And if they weren't doing a good job, enrollment went down and with it, their income. So let's talk about family practice, general practice as an area. So one of the things that really struck me is how lowly it's seen within the hierarchy of uh, medical students and the uh, medical educational system. And it's not because it's not a skill and not desirable, but it's because it's paid so poorly. Right. Well, I mean, if you're, if you're coming out of, um, if you're coming out of school with $350,000 in debt and you're looking forward to making $90,000 a year, you're going to be paying off the debt for the rest of your life. So that obviously weighs on people. You know, the idea that you could discharge that debt in a couple of years if you selected the right, you know, uh, interventional uh, discipline or putting in coils and stents or whatever, that clearly needs to be fixed. And indeed, that's what the, you know, Lord help them, the administration is trying to do right now by amending the fee schedule. They're cutting in, uh, they're they're cutting into the uh, high incomes of those um, uh, procedure-oriented specialists to redistribute some of the money within a, within a, a, a capped system. And it was like, you know, they were um, committing infanticide by doing it. I mean, the so whole- is all the vested interests of all right. of the folks that have, and, you know, the people that are already there that don't want to give all that up. Right. We, well, we, sure. We- well, and, and, you know, of course, one of the tests of whether any system of government is working properly is whether it can separate the strong from the weak claims on scarce dollars. And this is where our political system is not helping us at all. We can't say no to anyone. Actually, that's not true. You can say no to people in about a half an hour window between 2.30 and 3 o'clock in the morning when the Congress is pushing out a reconciliation bill. That's how the cardiologists got it in the neck in 2005, you know, when they cut back their, uh, their, uh, their comp for nuclear medicine and a lot of other things. You can do a heck of a lot in a half an hour once a year. And that's about it. You really can't take anything away from anybody. I entered our healthcare system from politics and my job, my first job in healthcare was to prevent 
<laughs> state and federal governments from taking a penny away from my, my uh, colleagues on the faculty. So leave us with a thought on what we should be doing and what we should be focusing on to steer the, the, the ship in the direction that it needs to go. We need to simplify the payment process. We need to simplify it. We need to reduce the documentation requirements and demands on clinicians, physicians, nurses, and all the rest of them, uh, and, and subject what it is that we are asking them to document to some kind of fairly rigorous uh, Occam's razor sort of process where you know, you're really trying to decide how important is this? You know, and, and is it something that is worth diverting this person from direct patient care to do? And again, you know, digital health can help with this. I mean, you add digital health to the mix and you've given clinicians another tool to be able to make more efficient use of their own time so that they can meet the patient's needs. So I think we are going to need to radically simplify how we pay for care or we're gonna remain stuck in the position that we're in. So I don't think you're gonna find a single physician that's gonna disagree with that. If you can reduce that documentation burden and uh, allow them and all of the clinicians in the service to start to focus on the patient, not on the technology, which has been a pervasive problem for so many years, right. I think we can all agree and get behind that. Um, I, Jeff, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you. And I'm, I remain optimistic that we can actually do this, Nick. How do we decomplexify healthcare? So much has been tied to the administrative recording of activity that current dogma tells us is required to make sure we get the best efficiency out of the people and the system and prevent fraud. We know that's not true for fraud. There are examples of other high-stakes systems where fraud was identified without monitoring and documenting every individual action. We have seen it in the identification of cheating in school testing. We've seen it in the trading systems of airline staff bidding for high-value or desirable work options. The analysis of the data identifies and allows the outliers or bad apples to be removed. Successful businesses do monitor, but that does not have to include minute-by-minute -minute tracking of the people who work in the business, rather the end results and the actual products. That can and should be true in healthcare as well. Collect data, but make it a byproduct of your processes that are focused on delivering outstanding care. We don't need or want Moneyball Medicine, where the data is entered by the very staff we are wanting to deliver the best possible care. Your better pill to swallow is to simplify, or as Jeff puts it, decomplexify the system, apply Occam's razor to every one of your non-direct patient-related processes, and remove the ones that don't add value. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown, and join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone. Thank you.